Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. What's the best piece of advice you've ever had? Or maybe the worst piece of advice you ever had comes to memory. Um, dads on Father's Day, dads, well, not just on Father's Day, but dads, at least my dad, love to give advice, don't they? My dad, the other day, when we were just putting up a little shelf, took us, well, I think a lot longer than it should have done, because we stopped at every single moment for him to give me a little lecture on the difference between posi-drive screws and Phillips screws. Um, and the right screwdrivers or the wrong screwdrivers to use in those kind of situations. It's very, very important. So he gave good advice. He advised me to study what I studied at university, change the course of my life. Um, I ended up meeting Bethan and everything else. The rest of it is history. Uh, from there, dad advice is sometimes useless, sometimes very useful. But what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I wonder, maybe it was your father or your mother who gave you that advice. Maybe it was a very good friend. Maybe it was a careers advisor in school. Maybe it was somebody you, you didn't know at all, just bumped into on the bus and they talked to you and what they said has stuck with you for the whole of your life. What's the best advice you've ever been given? I wonder what you think about God when it comes to advice or being trustworthy. We looked at that a few weeks ago, didn't we? That God is trustworthy. We can trust him. So when he speaks, we should listen. And it's not just advice when he speaks either, but it's um, it's something binding. It's something that is fundamental and really important for all of human life. Well, we're going to look at something beyond God being trustworthy this week. We're going to look at the fact that God is wise. That God is wise. I wonder if that advice that you have in your mind came from somebody who was particularly wise. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it was somebody who's a real fool that never said anything useful, but that one useful thing they said in their lives was something that stuck in your memory. But I imagine for most of us, it's going to be from somebody who's wise, who knows what they're talking about. Let me read to you Romans chapter 11. If you have a Bible, if you're using a church Bible, uh, you can find it on page 1139. Romans chapter 11. And we're going to start and finish here and unpack some other things in Scripture um, to do with God's wisdom as we go. If you want a Bible, you want to have it open on your lap, you can grab one from the welcome desk. Um, Barbara can furnish you with one of those. Page 1139 if you're in the church Bibles. Romans chapter 11. And after... 11, well, 10 and a half chapters of Paul talking about how good God is, about his grace, about how he's given everything to us in the Lord Jesus by his grace, how he's dealt with the problems of, the deepest problems of the human heart because of Jesus. This is what he says. He breaks out in song and says this, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to read that again. <laughs> oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments how, and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
To him be the glory forever. Amen. So that's our point today. I've got one point, two examples from Scripture that prove that point, and then three things for us to do. So one, two, three, easy enough to remember. Our first point is this. God is infinitely wise. So there we go, should have... Um, well, well, God is wise, that was probably up before. But what is wisdom? That's the first question, isn't it? I wonder what would you say? What is wisdom? Famous rugby player, Brian O'Driscoll, said this. Wisdom, well, knowledge, is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. And that's, that's pretty good. So what do you think of that as a definition of wisdom? Well, wisdom involves knowledge, doesn't it? Wisdom and knowledge. So no, everyone, well, some people know tomato is a fruit. Everybody knows you don't put that anywhere near a fruit salad or anywhere near our dinner table. Fresh tomatoes are banned in our household. Disgusting, evil things, I think. But anyway, pizza's fine, ketchup's fine, just fresh tomatoes are out. No, thank you. So, but wisdom and knowledge, how do they work? Do they overlap? Well, they, yeah, they do overlap, don't they? You can be somebody who's very, very wise, and you definitely need knowledge to be, to be wise. But you can be somebody who's very, very knowledgeable, but have no wisdom at all. Do you know people like that who have PhDs coming out their ears, who just know everything there is to know, and yet who just don't seem to almost know anything? They, they just seem to make a wreck of everything. They don't get the big picture. They don't have wisdom, even though they have lots of knowledge. And maybe the opposite. Do you know plenty of people who have lots of wisdom, who don't have much education, who really know what life is all about, who know how to get things right, but who maybe never even went to school, don't even know how to read or write? There's plenty of people like that in the world. We need, wis- we need knowledge for wisdom, but wisdom doesn't necessarily come by just knowing stuff. I'm sure you can give many examples of that as well. So what is wisdom? Well, here's a definition of wisdom. Um, wisdom is knowing what the greatest goal is in any situation and what the best way is to achieve it. You see, that kind of overlaps wisdom and knowledge, doesn't it? Wisdom is not just knowing stuff, but it's knowing how to put that knowledge to good use. It's knowing the, how does he put it, the greatest goal in any situation. Knowing what you're supposed to be and do in any situation, in life, in DIY, in fixing a car, in baking a cake. You can know how to make flapjack, but please don't give me flapjack for a birthday cake. It's fine, it's okay. If there's nothing else to eat in the house, I'll have a piece of flapjack. But if you know that your task is to make me a a birthday cake, the greatest goal is to cook something really tasty, to have candles on it and blow it and enjoy it at a birthday party, you don't make flapjack, at least not in my opinion. Even though you might be the greatest flapjack maker in the world and have all of that knowledge... It doesn't really help you if your greatest goal is to make a birthday cake, in my book anyway. So knowledge and wisdom, they go together. But when it comes to God, we see that he has perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom in both. The depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. That doesn't mean he's just random, by the way. It doesn't mean that you can never quite understand what he decides because he he just decides different nonsense things all the time. It doesn't mean that. It's not that kind of thing. It's that he has so much deep wisdom. He understands things so fully that our minds, you know, our knowledge is like, <clears throat> is like a little symbol in comparison to the sea, isn't it? The amount that we know compared to all that's in the world. Well, God knows everything there is to know because, verse 36, from him, through him, and to him are all things. All things come from everything you can think of. Think of, try and think of everything. Put a big circle around it. All of that comes from God. 
And to him and through him are all things. So he knows everything. So, of course, his wisdom is going to be deeper. His knowledge is going to be richer. We can just never quite get to the bottom of it. That's what Paul is singing about here. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? You see, humans can be wise, a bit like God is wise. But God takes it to a whole other level, doesn't he? We've been learning just in the last few minutes. We had three pieces of helpful advice, some more helpful than others, um, from three fathers. And hopefully we've learned something, not just fathers, but brothers and sisters and mothers and grandmothers. We can all learn from that wisdom. And that's what humans are like, aren't we? We learn stuff. Our wisdom grows. That's what human wisdom is like, isn't it? It's finite. But with God, nobody can teach him anything. He doesn't need any counselors. He knows all there is to know already because everything that is has come from him. And so the, you see there's the big difference between God's knowledge and his wisdom and our wisdom. We can grow in wisdom. And in a, in a few minutes we'll pray for that and ask God to give us wisdom because we lack it in so many ways. But God doesn't need to ask that. He doesn't need to go on a course to learn some extra knowledge and, and learn to be wise. He knows and has all things already. He doesn't pick up wisdom. He is wisdom in himself. So God is wise. What is wisdom? It's knowing the greatest goal and knowing how to get there and get it done. I wonder if you would add anything to that definition. But let's run with it for now and see two things I want you to see in scripture. So turn to another passage, Psalm 104. Um, Sammy read this last week, so let's read it again and see if we remember. Psalm 104. The first thing that we see is that God's wisdom is shown to us in creation. Can we have that slide up? Here we go. So let me show you that. Psalm 104, verse 24. The Lord made... Sorry, that's Psalm 105. Psalm 104. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. You'll find that same kind of thought over and over again in the Psalms and in plenty of other places in the Bible, that God made the world from his wisdom. Not just his knowledge of how to put things together, but in his wisdom, he wanted a place to show his glory, to show how good and wonderful and loving he is. He wanted to share it with others. He'd been sharing it, Father, with Son and Holy Spirit from eternity, and yet now he wants it to bubble over and have a place, a world that he can enjoy and that can enjoy him, where his glory will be multiplied where his blessings will be known by all people. See, that's his greatest goal, is for him to be known and loved, and for us, his people, his creation, to be known and loved. See, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're made for. That's the greatest goal, isn't it? How many songs do we know about all you need is love? How many people, well, we know that cliche, don't we? Around your deathbed, how many people would say, I wish I spent more time in the office? We want people around us, don't we? People who we love and who we know. And that in human culture, even if we don't believe in God, is an echo of what we're made for, of the greatest goal of human existence, which is not to make money, which is not to just have a healthy and kind of happy life, which is, which is not just to eat and consume and kind of enjoy lots of experiences. It is ultimately to know and be known, to love and be loved. And that will involve a bit of money, isn't it? That's kind of greases the wheels of human culture. It'll involve relationships. It'll involve experiences and, and emotional highs. It'll involve all sorts of these things God has given us in the world. But what's the greatest goal of all? Is to know God and love God. Is to know other people and love other people. 
is to be known and be loved by God and other people. You see, that's the greatest goal. So how do we get there? Well, God had to create the world. Had to create the world full of wonderful, amazing things to taste and to enjoy. Wonderful things to look at and just have our minds blown by. Can I blow your mind for a second? What if you ever heard of the bombardier beetle? Anybody heard of a bombardier beetle? <laughs> this is amazing. Listen to this. I found this in a book this week. This bizarre animal has a very unusual defense mechanism. It has tubes in its tail that store two different chemicals. And these chemicals, when mixed together, cause an explosion. It also has a third substance, an inhibitor, which prevents any explosion from taking place until the chem chemicals enter a chamber in its rear, um, in the bottom of the beetle. At this point, an enzyme is added and an explosion takes place, firing a 212-degree jet out of its backside at its enemies and propelling itself several yards away. Can you believe that that is in creation? That God has invented a beetle that explodes its own backside, but it doesn't die in the process. It's incredible, isn't it? And just, I don't know, to, for, as a means of transport and as a means of warding off enemies. Isn't that, that's incredible, isn't it? His point in the book is that that couldn't have come about by random chance. That if it ever went wrong, it would blow the beetle to smithereens. And so somebody must have made that. Somebody must have come up with that and put that together in wisdom. Not just in knowledge of knowing how chemicals work and chemistry and all that kind of thing. And I suppose it's sort of an early form of rocket what do you call it, rocket science or something, isn't it? But not just knowledge, but wisdom, so that people would one day look at that, David Attenborough would one day describe that, and would go, wow. And our hearts would sing and, and say, somebody made that, and he is amazing, and I want to get to know him and be loved and enjoyed by him. That's incredible, isn't it? But more than a beetle, let me tell you a couple of things my sister told me this week. My sister is a pediatrician. I have three. The middle of the three is a pediatrician. She works in a hospital in London with um, babies in intensive care. She has some, just some wonderful stories about things that they've done to help uh, little sick babies. But in healthy babies, I wonder if you've ever wondered, how does a baby who's been growing in a mother's womb for nine months, with its lungs filled with water, filled with amniotic fluid, how does it breathe a couple of seconds after it comes out of the womb? Because you don't see, if you've ever been there, you don't see a baby puking up lots of water. Do you? It, we, there's other things that happen, but you don't see that. So how, how does it happen? My sister was saying this week, it happens like this. Some, somehow, as soon as the baby comes out, the cry, the first cry the baby makes, puts a little bit of pressure into the lungs, and all of that fluid, in a moment, is absorbed by the lung tissue. So air just pops into the lungs, and it begins to breathe. Nine months in the womb, not breathing at all, with the fluid there, perfectly filling the lungs so that they can grow and develop as lungs should. And then in a moment, after all that nine months of not practicing it, in a moment, the fluid disappears into the tissue and it breathes. It's amazing, isn't it? There's something even more amazing about the heart. Shall I have a go at explaining it? You can see. If you don't understand, you can ask the nurses and midwives in the room to explain it better afterwards. Okay, the heart. So a baby is inside the mother's womb, not breathing. So how does it get oxygen into its blood? Well, through the mum, okay? So the mum has oxygen in her blood, goes through the placenta, through the um, umbilical cord, into the baby's tummy, and then it goes up into the heart. Oxygenated blood, okay? Blood with oxygen in it that you need for life, into the right side of the heart over here. And then usually it would go from there into the lungs, back to the left side of the heart, and then out to the body. 
Okay, the lungs is where you pick up oxygen, back to the left side and into the body. But a baby doesn't have oxygen in its lungs yet. It doesn't do it like that. So how does it work? It goes oxygenated good blood into the part where kind of dirty, unoxygenated blood should go. It doesn't need to go to the lungs. In fact, if it did, it would waste time losing oxygen there before it went to the rest of the body. So there's a special little tube that babies have in the womb that goes from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart that kind of short circuits the lungs. Takes the blood from that to the other side and then pumps good, nice mummy's blood to the rest of the body. But then what happens when the baby's born? And you cut the cord and it starts to breathe. Doesn't it get confused? Doesn't it start pumping old, you know, unoxygenated blood through to the good side, oxygenated heart side, and then out to the rest? That would mess up the baby. You would be having unoxygenated blood in the rest of the baby's body. So what happens is, in a moment, that shuts down. That tiny little extra tube that it's had in the, in the, in the womb for nine months shuts off, an enzyme or, or a hormone is produced, and it cuts that little tube. Eventually, it kind of dies away in the next few days and is never seen again. And in a moment, the baby somehow learns to move oxygen, from, to move blood from this side back to the lungs to get oxygenated into this side of the body. It's incredible, isn't it? If you, even if you didn't understand that, that's sort of the point. Without you even asking... God has made your body to be something that would give you life, that would have been carrying you around, seeing and enjoying and loving and knowing and learning and speaking and eating and doing all these things. God has given you your body as a gift when you didn't ask for it. In that first moment of birth for you, your lungs learned somehow to breathe oxygen. That tiny little tube that you've never heard of in your heart shut off so that it could work as it's working right now. Isn't that amazing? God made you in his wisdom, not just a beetle that fires a rocket out of its bum, but he made you with all of that genius just in the first couple of seconds. And there's so many other processes and things about our bodies that we just don't understand, that we can't get our heads around, and yet they work because God has made them to work. Isn't that amazing? We're guests of God's wisdom. We're guests of a bigger reality. We didn't ask to be a part of it. God has given us as a gift this wonderful world and our wonderful bodies to enjoy him, to know him, to love him and be known and be loved. But I wonder if part of us is saying the world isn't all that wonderful all the time. There are some wonderful things that make our hearts sing, but there's also plenty of other things that make us want to cry and make us want to give up on life completely. There are other bugs whose sole purpose it seems to be, to burrow into the eyes of people and make them blind. How did that get into the world? There are babies, and my sister knows them well, who don't make it healthily through birth. Nothing almost seems to work with them as it should. Parents who leave the hospital, not with a joyful bundle to, to look forward to birthdays and weddings and being grandparents, but they leave hospital with nothing except their own grief. How has that happened in the world? And so you can look at the world and say, wow, God is wise and wonderful and worship him. And you can look at the world and think, who on earth made it like this? What is going on? What kind of world do we live in that's so beautiful and yet so dark at the same time? How do we put that together? This God seems so wise in one minute and yet so at best distant or maybe even nasty to leave us in a world with which gives us such hope and yet dashes those hopes so much? How, 
how do we understand a word like that? And I think we can only begin to understand it if we understand our second piece of evidence. So the first thing that shows us God is wise is creation. But there's also some other problems. If we just look at the world around us, it, it isn't all that wonderful always. So we need something else. And that second thing is this, is the cross. If you're a Christian already, if you've been here before, um, you maybe know where we're going. You'll know what the cross is all about. But let me read you a passage. This is 1 Corinthians 1. It's on the screens. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Gentiles are people who aren't Jews. So mostly you and me. People who haven't really been worshipping God since you know, the, the time that our uh, nation began. So Jews... And Greeks both think the crucifixion is silly. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, he is what we preach, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You can look at the creation and it'll give you mixed messages. But you look at the cross and it will show you God really is wise. Because this is his solution. This is what he's done to put the world back together again, to make it possible for us to be known and to be loved and for us to know and love others. How has he done that? Well, he's done that in a way that you would never expect, a way that humans would never guess. Jews think religious people. They look for impressive, powerful signs, things from God that look amazing, that kind of, well, I suppose, beetles and bodies and wonderful, miraculous acts and that kind of thing. But what has God given us as the ultimate sign of his wisdom? He's given us his son, who was born as a peasant, who grew up with people misunderstanding him and hating him and trying to get rid of him, and eventually they succeeded. This son of God died, who was crucified. Some of you wear that around your necks. Some of you have little tattoos of it. Some of you have seen that on church buildings, and you know a bit about the cross, and maybe it seems fine to us, like we feel we understand it, but really it's ridiculous when you think about it, that, that God, who's powerful over everything, would become a tiny baby, would go through that process of having his lungs filled and that little blood vessel kind of pinched, who would go through all of that, not to become a king in a palace or a great man who would do amazing signs and the world would flock to him and, and he would have a huge, uh, I don't know, a huge cathedral built around him on a massive throne, at least yet, but that he would go to a cross and die. If you're expecting religious signs and massive signs of wonders and works of power, well, this is what God gives to you. He gives you a dying son who screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Why would you you worship or follow somebody who's died? And Greeks or Gentiles, people who aren't particularly religious, what are they expecting? Well, they're into philosophy and they're into psychology they're into all sorts of clever things and, and special words, into being inspired and, and built up, being into positive thinking. And then what do you get? Well, what does God give people like that? He gives you a, a man dying naked in darkness, screaming. And he says that's the high point. That is wisdom. That is power. That's the solution to all of the world's problems. Really? The solution to all of the world's problems is a man who suffered horrendous injustice, who was executed when he didn't deserve to be, and died alone, screaming. Really? Is that wisdom? Is that, what you, is that all you have to offer, Christians? And Paul says, yes, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, foolishness. And yet, to those 
who know him, to those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So it might seem ridiculous to begin with, but scratch the surface, dig a little bit deeper, come further up and further in, and you'll see what looks like foolishness is really wise and wonderful. What looks like weakness is really the greatest of power. What looks like it should just be tossed to the curb and forgotten about in history actually becomes the center of all of history. It's amazing, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you'll know this, that that man dying on the cross, well, why do we wear his emblem around our necks? Why do we get it tattooed? Why do we put it at the front of our churches if it's so embarrassing? Well, it's because it's not really that embarrassing when you understand what's really happening. I mean, it is and it isn't. Do you see that? Because what is happening here is God putting the world together again. All of the darkness that's in the world, all of those bugs that have somehow got into their heads to, to destroy rather than to give life. All of the, the darkness in our relationships where we hate instead of love, where we're selfish instead of self-giving. All of that darkness that there is in the world. We should be honest, it's mostly our fault, isn't it, really? Most of the hardness and sadness comes from human making. What's happening at the cross is Jesus taking all of that and swallowing it. He's dying in the dark so that the rest of the world doesn't have to. He's taking all of the darkness, all of the evil, all of the punishment, all of the anger that there is from a God who's good and loving against the world that has, has turned its back against him. He's taking it all onto himself and taking it away. It looks stupid to begin with, but actually it's glory. It looks ridiculous. Why would that ever be something useful for us? Actually, it's really wise. It's the best way, the only way, of reaching that greatest goal. Do you see that? The only way is that God himself would come and take that pain on his own shoulders and say, you can be forgiven. We know that, don't we, from our relationships. If you hurt somebody or if they hurt you, the only way to get back right with them is if they come and apologize. And you say, I forgive you. You kind of swallow up that pain. You take it in yourself, all of that darkness, and you say, I'm not going to treat you like you should and deserve to be treated. I'm going to take that pain into my own. I'm going to swallow it down. I'm going to forgive you and treat you as if you never did that. That's the only way we can have restoration in relationships, isn't it? That's what Jesus is doing. It's God himself stepping into human history to swallow up, to take all of that darkness and pain into himself, to say, I will take it. I'll deal with it and I will forgive you. You see, the greatest goal of knowing God, well, he's come to us. The greatest goal of loving God and being loved by God, well, he's come to us and given himself to us, taken away all that stands in the way between us so that we can be known and loved. It's the only way. It's the best way to reach that highest and greatest goal that you were made for. Do you see? It seems ridiculous to begin with, a man dying 2,000 years ago, naked on a cross. When you look into it, when you dwell on it a little bit more, when you ask God to open your eyes to see it, you'll see it. You'll see that that's wisdom when it first seemed like irrelevance, that it's power when it first seemed like embarrassing weakness. So there we have it, two pieces of evidence for us. In creation, look around you, look at your body, look at the world. God is wonderful and wise but it's gone wrong. It's not as it should be. 
What has God done about that? Well, look at the cross. Look at his amazing wisdom that he should have thrown the earth, but he didn't. He came to earth. He should have brushed us aside, but he didn't. He took that on himself so he could draw us close. That is wonderful wisdom. That's why Paul breaks out in praise and says, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who had ever guessed that he was that loving to give us his own son? Who has ever given to God that we should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. So what do we do about that? If God is wise like this, what do we do? Well, three things. Three so what's for today. The first is worship. I hope your heart's been stirred a little bit with a beetle, with your body, and with looking at Christ's body. I hope your heart's been stirred to worship and sing. That's what Paul does here, isn't it? After ten and a half chapters, he can't help himself. He bursts out in doxology and singing. The animals can't help doing that either. A few verses on in Psalm 104. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, could be a whale or an old word for something like that, which you formed to frolic there. What are whales and beetles and bodies made for? They're made to worship and enjoy the world God's given to us. So that's the first thing we can do out this week, is to go out and eat your lunch to the glory of God. Be a person that God has made you to be and do it in a way that worships him. We'll stand together in a minute and we'll do what Paul does. We'll sing with our lips, with our voices. So even if you can't sing very much, even if you don't quite feel like it, ask him to stir worship in your heart and sing because a God who's this wise, who's this this good, is worth worshiping, isn't he? The animals do it, the whales do it by frolicking and flipping and, and blowing out water, whatever they do. Well, how do people do it? We do it by singing. We do it by working and doing everything to the best of our ability. We do it by loving others, by sleeping restfully and and trusting ourselves to him. We do it by looking after our children and giving them a, a, a truer picture of what God the Father is like. You see, everything, every part of our life is worship as we do what God made us to do. So we'll see that he's wise and let's worship him. But maybe you don't feel like doing that yet. So maybe the first thing really you need to do is to trust him, to see that sometimes what God does and chooses to do and says doesn't look like wisdom. The cross is the example of that, isn't it? It looks like stupidity. It looks like folly. It looks ridiculous. And yet, you just wait three days and you'll see its glory. You'll see it's the only hope for the world. So I wonder if there's something that God has been speaking to you about recently. I wonder if there's something you've been reading in Scripture and you just know you should do that. Or would not do that. Well, trust him. He's wise. You can trust what he says. His advice isn't like that advice, you know, hit and miss. His advice is good because he knows everything. He sees everything. That's part of wisdom, isn't it? Seeing and knowing the greatest good and how to get there. Well, he sees everything. So if he's been speaking to you about doing something or stopping doing something, well, listen to him and trust him. Maybe you need to trust him for the first time today. Maybe, you, maybe you've been weighing this up so far. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while and thinking, oh, is this, does this make sense? Is it really true? Is it something I could build my life on and kind of throw my weight onto? Well, yes, it is. If you saw how much God saw, 
If you saw how much he sees, if you knew how much he knows, you wouldn't have any questions about trusting him. So come and trust him. Perhaps for the first time today, look at the cross and think, that's it, that looks weird to me, but I want to know more. I want to dig deeper. So you can do this third thing as well and ask. Pray. Ask him and say, Lord, would you help me see that this is wisdom and not just irrelevance or weird? Would you help me see how it makes sense? Would you help me trust you so that I could worship you with my whole life? And if you're worshipping him and if you're trusting him already, if you're a Christian, then you can ask for something as well, a couple of things. First, you can ask for wisdom. Wisdom for other people. Wisdom for our leaders and our rulers. They need a lot of that at the moment, don't they? Wisdom for me and Sammy and, and the leaders of the church. Wisdom for fathers and mothers in our church and in our society that they'd be good parents. Wisdom for our friends that they would be good and faithful friends to us. Wisdom for all the people around us, for teachers in school, for everybody that you know. Let's pray for wisdom for other people that they'd know the greatest goal of life in knowing God, but in all the little things as well, and that they'd have wisdom to know how to get there. They'd know how to run a country, see the great goal for who we should be as a a peaceful nation, who love one another and who love the world, and that they would know how best to get there. That's the kind of thing you can pray for and ask for our leaders. But we can ask too for wisdom for ourselves. That's what we should do, isn't it? James chapter 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. He's forgiven you. If you're a Christian, he doesn't find fault in you anymore. So you're struggling with something? You've got a big decision to make? Are you struggling, especially with suffering? That's what James talks about. Where that kind of haze that comes down when things get really hard and you just don't know what to do. Well, come and ask him. Come and trust him that he'll know. And come and ask him in prayer. Go and search the scriptures. Come and ask his people who trust him. And he'll give you wisdom. Without finding fault, he won't say, oh, you did that, you did that, you didn't do that, I'm not going to give it to you this week. No, he will give it to you. So do you want wisdom? Do you desire it? Well, come and ask him. Let me read you some verses from Proverbs. You can make these your verses for the week. My son, Solomon, the one who asked for wisdom, that was his first step of wisdom, wasn't it? You can read that story in 1 Kings. My son, accept my words and store up my commands within you. Turn your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. You see, if you want wisdom, if you ask for it, it'll lead you to God, to trust in him. And when you trust in him, it'll lead you to worship. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. You'll understand that greatest goal, what's right and just and fair, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. So are you searching for it like silver and gold? Do you want most of all to know what, what your greatest goal in life is to be? Do you want to know how to get there? Do you want God? Well, ask him, and he'll give him yourself. For he isn't just wise, he is wisdom. So come and ask him. Come and trust him, and then open your mouth, and open your life in worship.
hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.